welcome to the Theology Mill podcast brought to you by Whitfinstock Publishers. My name is Zach Mickle. I'm on staff here at Whitfinstock, and I'm also the host of this podcast, which consists of interviews with leading authors and thinkers in theology, biblical studies, and philosophy. If you like what you're hearing on our podcast, stop by our website at whitfinstock.com, where you'll find our catalog and where you can also browse our blog. So on this episode, I speak with professors Leonard Grob and John K. Roth. Leonard Grob is Professor Emeritus of Philosophy at Fairleigh Dickinson University, and John K. Roth is the Edward J. Sexton Professor Emeritus of Philosophy at Claremont McKenna College. The two of them have published a number of books together, including a volume on Jewish, Christian, and Muslim relations, as well as another volume that serves as kind of a protest against torture. And then most recently with us at Cascade, a volume which we talk a lot about in this episode called Warnings, the Holocaust, Ukraine, and Endangered American Democracy. So with that, thank you very much for listening, and I hope you enjoy this episode. So I am here with Drs. Leonard Grob and John Roth, who are the authors of the New Cascade book, Warnings, the Holocaust, Ukraine, and Endangered American Democracy. So it's great to have you both on. Um, As we kick things off, could each of you just tell us a bit about yourself um, and what you do professionally? Let's let's start with Professor Grob, and then we'll go to Professor Roth. Thank you, Zachariah, first of all, for having us. So... I live in Nyack, New York, just about 30 miles north of the city. My uh, career has been, my my doctorate is in philosophy, and I taught for 39 years at Fairleigh Dickinson University in Teaneck, New Jersey, where I uh, did a lot of work um, on religious existential thought the thought of Martin Buber and Emmanuel Levinas in particular, and also on peace studies. That was early in my career. A roots journey back to Ukraine uh, in 1989 uh, to see the site where my father's family was murdered during the Holocaust. My father was the sole person in his immediate family to come to the United States. He came as a 17-year-old in 1921. The rest of the family were murdered uh, in early 1942 on the streets of Stanislavo, what was then Poland, today Ukraine. My father died uh, at a young age. Um, He had expressed a wish to go back and weep on the soil where his family was murdered. And 25 years after his death, um, my wife and I went back and we found the house where he and my grandparents and aunts and uncles had lived. And uh, I wrote a note with their names on it and tied it around uh, the stems of the flowers, put it on the windowsill. And this was their funeral. Um, 
having been shot on the street of Stanislavo and uh, dumped into pits uh, outside the city, uh, they had had uh, uh, no burial ceremony. So I had succeeded in naming the dead and was able to carry out my father's wishes. Well, this visit, right after returning, I decided that I had to study the Holocaust. And so for the last uh, 30 plus years, this has been um, one of the two major uh, areas of study for me and teaching. And uh, I got to know John in this in this context, and we'll talk about that um, a little bit later, I imagine. But uh, so this has been one of the two areas. The other area that I have worked in, I'm not a traditional philosopher. I also have chosen to work in Israel-Palestine conflict situation. Uh, I belong to two NGOs that are working on resolution of the conflict. Um, my most current work is to come to the to missions uh, at the United Nations and to present ideas for resolution of the conflict. At this time, especially, um, this work has become uh, ever so much more important, and it's a harrowing time, uh, but we have to persevere, and this is my way of making the small contribution, but hopefully a contribution. Mm -hmm. So that's a little bit of my personal history. Thank you very much for that. Okay, how about you, Professor Roth? Well, thank you. And uh, what Lenny has said will uh, both uh, echo and uh, be somewhat different from uh, my identity story. Lenny and I are, are brothers uh, partly because we are philosophers, both of us, and certainly because of our uh, long-term commitment to uh, study of the Holocaust and uh, genocide. But uh, my history is different from Lenny's. I have no Holocaust survivors in my family. I come from a Christian background. My forebears were uh, immigrants to the United States from Europe in the uh, 1840s. I was born in 1940. Lenny and I are just about the same age. Um, I happened to be born into the home of a Presbyterian minister, and uh, that left a, a formidable uh, impact on me, on my upbringing, uh, my, my thinking, my uh, commitments. As an undergraduate in college uh, at Pomona College in California, I majored in philosophy, and I came to be interested in what philosophers often refer to as the problem of evil. Why is it that there is so much uh, suffering and injustice in the world? How can it be that in situations where life is so precious and good and inspiring, uh, it can be... Uh, trashed and disrespected and uh, brutalized by, by human beings. So that question uh, was one that kind of uh, focused the graduate work that I did in uh, ethics and uh, influenced the teaching that I started to do when I 
uh, returned to Claremont, California and began uh, 40 plus years of teaching philosophy at Claremont McKenna College, a liberal arts college in uh, Southern California. When I was getting along well early in my career, everything was going nicely for me. I was about to become a father for the second time. My uh, career was going well. I was living my own version of, of the American dream, a topic that I taught about uh, regularly at the college. And um, I followed the suggestion of a, a teacher friend of mine who said to me one day, this is early in the 1970s, that I might be interested in reading some of the writings of Elie Wiesel, uh, who had survived Auschwitz and would later go on to uh, win the Nobel Peace Prize. So I read uh, as much of Wiesel's writings as were available to me in uh, 1972, about the time that my second child was born. And this became a kind of turning point in my life because on the one hand, I was experiencing good things, hope. Uh, I was about to become a father again. Uh, my career was going well. Uh, it looked to me like I was you know, living the American dream. But on the other hand, uh, the reading I was doing in Wiesel's writings was taking me into the uh, antithesis of dreams. It was taking me into nightmares, into darkness, into destruction. And uh, this touched me in a way that made me feel I have to find out more about this history. And so I started to do that. And along the way, one of the things I discovered, which I hadn't realized quite as much before, was that my own Christian tradition was deeply implicated in the uh, Holocaust that uh, German Christians and other Christians had either sided with the Nazis or had uh, stood by and not intervened in ways that would have been, a, been the right thing to do. And so my life changed. And uh, like Lenny, I used my uh, philosophical lens as a way of thinking about the Holocaust and the Holocaust also became a lens for thinking about all sorts of other things, including uh, the American dream uh, and what, uh, what it needed to become and do uh, in order to be responsible in the aftermath of the Holocaust. So a long career ensued along the way. Uh, Lenny and I met and became friends, and that's a story unto itself that we can uh, get into because it's important for the book. But... I would say the reason that I came to write uh, and participate with Lenny in writing warnings was because I've had this longstanding interest in American history and culture and literature and politics on the one hand, and my interest in the Holocaust was there on the other side. And uh, as Lenny and I began to look at uh, current events, it seemed to us that writing a book like Warnings turned out to be was a, a, a good and important thing to do. Sure. Well, yeah, thank you both for these introductions. They provide a nice uh, full picture of, of where each of you are coming from. And as we move forward in our conversation, we'll definitely get into how you two came to know each other and become friends and what kind of prompted this book project that, that culminated in, in this book warnings. But before we get into all of that, our, we have to cover our icebreaker question that we do with all of our guests. 
which is if you could place any three people that are alive in a room and they're kind of all situated around a table and you can listen into their conversation, all of them together, which three figures would you choose and why? Well, maybe I can lead off on this um, and I'll try to, to be uh, compact in responding. I, I thought long and hard about this question, Zachariah, because it's really challenging and I couldn't restrict it just to three. So I have two sets of three and I'll, I'll go through them quickly. The first is a, a set of three women I would love to talk to. And uh, here they are. And a, a quick comment about why. One would be a woman named Charlotte Delbo. Charlotte Delbo was in the French resistance during the Second World War. She was caught by the Nazis and they sent her to Auschwitz. She survived and went on to write uh, an important trilogy called Auschwitz and After. And in this book, one of the things that she keeps emphasizing is the importance of looking, looking at things and trying to see them straightforwardly and clearly. And she focuses often on calling attention to the dead, to the to people she saw who died in, in the genocide and uh, who remained part of her memory. And uh, Charlotte Delbo is a beautiful writer uh, she is somebody who has influenced my thinking a lot because of her emphasis on looking clearly and lucidly at what is happening. Another person who I would include in the three women is a, is a contemporary writer named Anne Applebaum, who is a journalist and an author and a scholar. Uh, she often writes uh, informative pieces for The Atlantic. But one of the books that she published while Lenny and I were writing warnings is called The Twilight of Democracy. And it's a book I highly recommend. Ann Applebaum is a realist. She doesn't pull any punches. And she uh, was writing and continues to write about the dangers facing uh, democracy, not only in the United States, but globally. And then the third person I would have in this first trio is Amanda Gorman. She's a poet, a young poet. She wrote the inaugural poem that she recited at uh, Joe Biden's inauguration in uh, 2020. And I would want to talk to her because she's young and I'm old. And I would want to find out from her what young Americans are most concerned about and, and what they're thinking about. So those are my three women, Charlotte Delbo, Ann Applebaum, and Amanda Gorman. Then, if three men were present, I would pick, uh, first of all, James Madison, one of the founders of our country, often referred to as the father of the Constitution of the United States. And I would want to talk to him about what he might do differently if he were thinking about the Constitution of the United States in 2023 instead of back in uh, the late 18th century. In particular, I'd want to ask James Madison what he would think today about the Electoral College, which is one of the things that endangers democracy in the United States, in my view. Sometimes we have threats that are coming, you know, from outside and sometimes from inside, but sometimes the inside threats are sitting right in the Constitution of the United States itself. And the Electoral College is something that Lenny and I have called out as needing to be reformed and changed because it isn't a very democratic, lowercase d, uh, institution in our politics. 
A second person I would have at the table would be Ellie Wiesel. I've mentioned him before. I'd like Wiesel at the, at the table because of the emphasis in his thinking about uh, the dangers of indifference and neutrality. Wiesel was very strong on this. He always said that the neutrality always helps the victimizers, not the victims. And he believed that indifference was in some ways uh, worse than evil itself, because indifference to evil allows evil to thrive and injustice to grow. And then my third party in this trio would be Albert Camus, the uh, French novelist and playwright and philosopher, um, who gives me the model for resistance against uh, injustice and uh, anti-democratic threats. Uh, Camus thought that uh, the battle against these kinds of problems was uh, something that had to be viewed as unending, but it required persistence and uh, commitment uh, to keep going, to keep kind of pushing the rock up the hill, even if the rock would often come tumbling back down on us again. So those are my two sets of three. Sorry for a long answer to your shorter <laughs> question, but I, I couldn't uh, limit it to just three people. <laughs> it is a challenge. No, those sound like two very fascinating conversations for sure. Okay, Professor Grob, how about you? Who would you choose? Yeah. I, I love this exercise, and uh, I often ask my students to do something of this kind and have them write a paper uh, where their three choices or so are are engaging in conversation and to write that conversation down. So I enjoyed this, although I, the challenge was enormous to pick three. Um, I went back to Plato's Socrates, whom I would love to talk with. I would. Uh, Socrates, the, the Socrates that Plato wrote of uh, was someone for whom the examined life, uh, the unexamined life is not worth living. I feel this is the cornerstone not only of the philosophical enterprise, but the cornerstone of um, living a good life. Um, I would want Socrates to challenge me um, that uh, I not live unthought, unthoughtfully uh, holding on to unexamined assumptions. I think this would be therapeutic for me in the most spiritual sense. Socrates also emphasized the importance of dialogue. That is in dialogue that we can discover in good dialogue, that uh, we have to uh, think against ourselves, that there is more room to grow. So I would hope to have a conversation where I would be severely challenged uh, by Socrates and uh, to grow uh, spiritually in that sense. The second person that I chose is Martin Buber, the German-Jewish thinker of who wrote mainly in the first half of the 20th century. Uber also talks about dialogue. He talks about it in a somewhat different way. Um, he contrasts the kind of encounters we have that he labels I-it encounters, in which 
we instrumentalize um, the other person or any other being. It needn't be a human person. It can be the way we relate to our environment, for example. Uh, do we um, utilize it for our own purposes or do we engage it and learn from it and feel a sense that we can transcend the world in which we see its, in which we deal with instrumentality only? How can the being whom I encounter serve my needs? And instead, um, uh, move toward a moment of transcendence. So Buber has been um, a major influence on, on my life, teaching me um, about the sacred, about the holy. And he has been vitally important in all my writings and I hope uh, in the way that I conduct my life in general. And the third person that I chose, and here's where you can say that um, John and I have spent a fair amount of time together because I also chose Charlotte Delbo. And I agree, of course, with what John said about her teaching us how to see, not just to look, but to see, uh, and to see the evil that humans can do. Um, Delbo, uh, you know, I've been talking about Buber and transcendence. Um, Delbo wants to, us to see uh, the ultimate in dehumanization when she uh, spent time in Auschwitz and in her trilogy, Auschwitz and After, talks about uh, her experience there. But it's not just uh, her teaching to see, that's vitally important, but also for me, uh, I was very much influenced by the biographical fact that uh, in the early years of World War II, um, Delbo was actually in Argentina uh, working with a theater company there. And um, but she left the safety of South America to go back to France and to work in the resistance. And she was captured and spent time um, in Auschwitz. And this is part of her call for us to do something. I would hope that if I had been in that situation that I might have acted in a similar way. And she calls on us to do this. Um, there's a passage in Auschwitz and After that uh, continues to influence me. And I'll just read it. It's very brief. Delbo says, you who are passing by, I beg you, do something. Learn a dance step. Something to justify your existence. Something that gives you the right to be dressed in your skin, in your body hair. Learn to walk and to laugh. Because it would be too senseless, after all, for so many to have died while you live doing nothing with your life. So that's why uh, I picked Delbo. That's lovely. Well, it would be a very uh, wide-ranging cast of figures if we imagined all, all, I guess it would be eight, I think, that we came up with, uh, or that you two came up with. Um, and it gives us, I think, a nice picture into, you know, your own your own sort of intellectual imaginations and, and the figures that have um, left deep impressions on you. So thank you very much for those answers. I want to turn to um, how how you two came to be friends. So how did you how did you come to 
know each other? How did you meet? And then how did you, you know, become become good friends? And then also the what what was the sort of the genesis of this particular book, this warnings book? Let's start with Professor Roth, and then we'll move to Professor Grob. I met Lenny in uh, 1994 at Dartmouth College. I'd known about him before I met him, but uh, we were attending a conference called Lessons and Legacies, which is a a well-known conference that continues uh, even now. It brings together uh, Holocaust and genocide uh, studies people to share their thinking and work. And um, I was on a panel that included uh, people who were reporting on how their their academic disciplines played into or related to their study of the Holocaust. And I was there uh, to represent the discipline of philosophy. So after the uh, session, Lenny came up to me. He'd been in the audience and uh, he he wanted to talk because he was a philosopher as well. And in this field of uh, Holocaust and genocide studies, uh, philosophy is represented, but it isn't the case that there are as many philosophers as there are historians or political theorists or even people who work on uh, literature that comes out of these um, mass atrocity uh, situations. So Lenny and I, you know, talked, and we could see a, I could see a friendship was forming. Then about two years later, I was on sabbatical in Norway, and uh, I read an announcement about a uh, symposium that was forming, and uh, the announcement was asking if people were interested, if they would sort of apply to become a member of of this uh, circle of uh, Holocaust scholars and uh, genocide scholars that uh, uh, was was planning to get together for the first time uh, outside of Oxford, England uh, in 1996. And as I read through the announcement, I saw that one of the organizers of this initiative was Lenny Grob. So I said, oh, I have to apply for that. So I applied and I w- was very pleased a few months later when I got a message that said, please, you know, join the group, which I was happy to do. And uh, Lenny and I uh, in that symposium, which met every other year, and and Lenny deserves huge credit for organizing this. This initiative continues also uh, into the the 2020s. Uh, Lenny's uh, inspiration was that this should not just be a meeting of people who got together and then went away and then came back again two years later. But rather, the, the purpose of the meeting was to organize uh, active working groups, writing groups primarily, that would continue work after the meeting in uh, England had, uh, had ended. And so uh, Lenny and I found ourselves together in a group at uh, Roxton College in, uh, in England in 1996 that was focused on ethics and the Holocaust. And that circle ended up producing a book we wrote together. And then, you know, Lenny and I uh, worked together over the years in a number of other writing projects. So we were uh, already 
um, veterans, I would say, of what we call dialogical writing, the kind that's in warnings, where one of us starts off by saying something and the other plays the role of uh, Socrates and asks questions, and then the other person responds to the questions. And uh, that's how we develop the chapters in uh, warnings. But we had done that in uh, some earlier works as well. So we were experienced uh, in working together as writers, as uh, friendly critics, as co-authors who try to spur each other on to achieve greater clarity and depth in our thinking. I can step in here and um, just I, I want to add something to this meeting in, in, at Dartmouth in 1994. Um, I uh, had read work of, uh, of John's, and uh, when I saw that he was on the program, I was especially interested in attending um, this Lessons and Legacies conference. And what I said to John, actually, when I uh, came up after his talk, uh, was what struck me in his talk was that he said, I'm a better philosopher for being a Holocaust scholar. And I had had that thought, and I had never heard anyone else utter it. What John was pointing to is the, um, the primacy of the ethical enterprise, and that the Holocaust, um, as one writer, uh, Philip Halley, has put it, is the true north and south of ethics. And uh, it gives us a compass by which to engage in ethical inquiry. So uh, this just hit me as a person who I want to know better. And for these uh, years that, uh, no, going close to 30 years, um, John has been not just a scholar colleague uh, but he has a friend. He has been a good friend. You know, you learn a lot about a co-author when you write a book together. And uh, there were no surprises here. It just uh, reinforced my sense that John uh, of John's menschlichkeit, that John is just an outstanding human being who lives what it is he talks about and what he writes. So this meeting at Dartmouth was important to me, and John and I felt very much at home in encouraging dialogue to be part of the books we co-edited and this current book, Warnings, um, in which whenever uh, I saw John's take on an issue, uh, I was really challenged and inspired at once uh, to write a response that we try to model the kind of dialogue that we hope will serve as a, a, a the root of uh, democratic practice anywhere. We wanted to model openness. We wanted to model respect of the other. We wanted to model uh, learning. So um, uh, that John has come into my life has been very important. Sure. Zachariah, I'd like to add just uh, uh, one more note, if I may, Absolutely. about the uh, development of the book called Warnings. 
in, 19, in, in 2021 and, and early 2022, uh, Lenny and I were in conversation. We, were, we, were, we kept telling each other, let's, let's do something together. That we, it was sort of like, well, let's try writing a book together. But we weren't quite sure what to do. And uh, we were kind of going back and forth trying to pinpoint you know, what our point of departure should be and what our, our main topic ought to be. And one day, as we were on a Zoom call with one another, I think it was in January of uh, 2022, Lenny said to me, and this is characteristic of Lenny in a way I'll mention, he said, John, democracy is in trouble. We ought to write about that. Using our using the lens of our our study of the Holocaust and genocide as a kind of prism for uh, for viewing current events. This was typical of Lenny because Lenny's uh, interest in Holocaust studies has always carried with it the the challenge that our study of the Holocaust ought to have something to say about current events. So one of the books that uh, Lenny and I helped to edit earlier on was actually about the Palestinian-Israeli conflict, which is you know back in view in, in a major way uh, as we're talking uh, uh, today. We did some other books like that, uh, but it was always Lenny who was the one who was saying, we have to use our expertise about the Holocaust, our ethical concerns that emerge from that study to think about what's going on in the world now. So Lenny suggested, let's write about the dangers that democracy is facing. And when I heard him say that, I said, yes, we've got it. That's, that's our topic. That's our challenge. We ought to write about warnings that the Holocaust provides or helps to focus with regard to the dangers facing American democracy. And that was our point of departure for warnings. Yeah, just to add one more small point to what John said, um, I felt, you know, I wasn't looking for uh, another book to write. I was, you know, well beyond um, trying to fill my curriculum vita with items uh, as a professor emeritus. I felt it more as a call, um, as a response to a call to to say something about the situation in which we found ourselves to make some kind of contribution uh, to it. So uh, without being overly mystical about it, I will say that it wasn't uh, in any way arbitrary. Um, it was a sense that this is something that we needed to do. Sure. Well, this, I think, gives us a nice sense of kind of where you both are coming from and, and a good sense of your, your friendship and the work you've done together and and sort of what prompted this particular book. So let's let's turn now to uh, discussing the book, this book, Warnings. I, I really like in the in the prologue, you have this kind of punchy, provocative, uh, short little line, um, which I'll quote here, which just says, democracy's existence invites its demise. So could you elaborate on, on what you mean by that exactly? And either, either one of you can kick off on this one. Yeah, I'll start off. I, I th- we we make the point throughout the book that um, democracy is is actually we say this explicitly it's it's more verb than noun. Uh, 
It's a living process more than any static product. That democracy has to continualize, continually democratize itself. I mean, it's up to us to work at all times to keep a liberal democracy alive. This is especially true because democracy can be used against itself. We really talk about liberal democracy uh, because under the heading of democracy, we have examples of illiberal democracies at the current moment in Hungary, Poland, Turkey. It's liberal democracy that we're talking about as something that we need to work tirelessly to keep alive because um, otherwise democracy can be turned uh, against itself. One example from the Holocaust that um, John often cites, and uh, I'll just take advantage of going first here, is um, how uh, Hitler came to possess um, total power uh, in Germany. He did not come to power via some violent coup. He assumed absolute dictatorial power legally uh, a few months after he became chancellor in 1933. The Reichstag passed what was called the Enabling Act, which gave Hitler the power to govern by decree without the parliament's consent. That allowed him to set aside all provisions in the Weimar democracy. And this, of course, led eventually to World War II and a death sentence for Europe's Jews. So we have to be very careful. John gave an example in our time of um, minority rule, which undermines democracy, even though it could be uh, used in the in the name of democracy. Um, John mentioned the electoral college system, and there are many other examples. So it's work that is ongoing, work that is constant. It is indeed more verb than noun. When uh, Lenny and I were proposing this book to uh, Liftenstock, Cascade Books, uh, one of the questions that uh, we were asked was a challenging one. Uh, the question was worded something like this. It said, uh, tell us in seven words, kind of emphasizing, we're not kidding, just seven words, what your book is about. And the answer that uh, Lenny and I came up with to that challenging question was the following. We said, and the, there, is, there are just seven words here in this uh, response, warnings defends liberal democracy against 2020s threats. So what are some of the threats that we see? Well, authoritarianism, lies. Uh, as, as Lenny and I looked at the ills facing and endangering American democracy, nearly always we found that a common denominator had to do with lies, lies big and small. Uh, other threats, uh, divisions, uh, polarizations, sometimes based on uh, white supremacy. Uh, what Lenny has called minority rule is another threat to democracy. The philosophy that might makes right and that my perceived rights and privileges trump yours. And um, all of these involve cases where the institutions of democracy can be uh, used against itself and where democracy can uh, invite its own demise. 
courts can be abused and used in ways that uh, subvert democracy. Law itself can uh, can do so. Even voting, uh, as Lenny pointed out in the uh, German situation back in 1933, uh, even voting can pass legislation that is not friendly to uh, democracy. As we understand democracy, we're wanting to defend what we call liberal democracy. And that includes basic fundamental things like uh, respect for the rule of law, uh, honoring fair and free elections, defending human rights, expanding them, not taking them away. And it's pluralistic. That is, it, it celebrates and honors differences and diversity. And that goes to you know cultural variety and religious variety and even political differences that we may share. But it's also inclusive, liberal democracy is. That is, it, it, it finds room and makes space for uh, differences, emphasizing the importance of respect for others and uh, including in that respect, the respect for open inquiry, reliable education, and uh, respect for truth. Sure. Okay. One of the things I, I would really like to talk about is the role, uh, which you guys speak about in the book, is the role or the sort of, I guess, the relationship between kind of personal character or virtue and democracy. So you, you write in warnings, for instance, about kind of um, how there are limitations to kind of thinking about democracy or trying to kind of codify democracies strictly through legislation, as you were just kind of saying, Professor Roth. Um, and, and you make a call that there's actually a necessity for citizens to have a certain character or a certain virtue in order for democracy even to sort of survive, not to mention, you know, the prospect of it actually flourishing. So why, why do you think that this topic of character seems kind of so absent or so neglected um, from kind of the contemporary political discourse in America? Because I think that it seems that the only time I, in general, that I hear folks talk about character is when they're sort of using it as a weapon to kind of bludgeon uh, some political character that they don't like or that they disagree with, but they think lacks some you know necessary character. But I'm curious, you know, what what you all think of sort of the place or the non-place of character in the in the current discussion. In my uh, conversation group, I mentioned a few minutes ago that one of the people I would like to uh, talk to is James Madison, uh, one of the, the founding, so-called founding fathers, as they're referred to. And uh, he's not the only one, but uh, all of these kind of late 18th century uh, figures who were uh, helping to establish the Constitution of the United States, um, they, they believed uh, uh, at least three things that uh, might seem to be in conflict, but uh, actually are not. They all had a rather dim view of uh, what human beings are, are typically likely to do. They tended to think that human beings are likely to be self-centered, selfish, um, not very uh, civic-minded, uh, that they, that they, you know, that they have kind of all of us as human beings, uh, uh, if, if to use an old word, are sinners. 
in one way or another. So they thought that if you're going to have a, a decent government that isn't tyrannical and uh, isn't serving only special interests, you have to create a, a system that has that familiar phrase, uh, checks and balances attached to it. So they established a form of government that had the three branches, the executive, the judicial, and the legislative. And they, they tried to uh, balance these things in such a way that none of them could, uh, could run amok and then uh, lead to tyranny. But, and this is the third thing, they also called consistently for the importance of, and here's an old-fashioned word again, the importance of virtue. That even though people were, were, were sinners and even though we would set up, you know, a system of checks and balances politically to guard against the excesses and extremes that might result, uh, none of this would work out well unless people kept reminding themselves of the importance of virtue. Now, what did they mean by virtue? Well, they meant things that we would associate with good character. That is that you're honest, that you uh, tell the truth, that you don't cheat, that you don't um, betray others, that you don't use people in ways that uh, uh, brutalize them and disrespect them. Now, they realized that this, too, was also probably not going to succeed terribly well, but they never gave up on the importance of emphasizing the importance of these qualities if the democracy, the representative democracy that they had uh, been striving for would have a chance uh, to succeed. So this is why uh, Lenny and I, in part, I mean, we subscribe to this part of the history of American democracy, that character matters. We, we say ethics matters. That's the way we put it in a nutshell, that, uh, that respecting uh, what is just, honoring uh, what is fair, keeping an eye, it's Charlotte Delbo, keep an eye focused on what is good and right and honest. Uh, absent these things, uh, democracy doesn't really have much of a chance. And that's why democracy is always fragile. And as Lenny keeps emphasizing again and again, that's why democracy has to be looked at as more of a verb a process, uh, a, a set of activities than a noun, uh, a set of you know institutions that somehow we assume can save us no matter how how corrupt or or irresponsible we become. Yeah, I think John has said it well. Um, we claim throughout the book that the institutions and procedures of democracy are only as good as the people who create and sustain them. So, uh, Zachariah, your, your question was, uh, why is there so little talk today of character? Um, I sense that it's just so much easier to talk about the nitty gritties of democracy, to talk about those procedures. Um, it's easy to talk about what happened in the House of Representatives uh, yesterday uh, or many times in in the last several weeks, for example, um, than it is to ask um, what kind of human being do we strive to be that 
there is no human nature as such. We make the human nature. We give the human nature that we choose. We give it to ourselves. We create ourselves in this sense, ethically speaking. So this is harder, I think, for people to talk about. Um, it's easy for philosophers, and we hope to model this uh, uh, for others. Uh, it's not that we are better but uh, than others for, for talking about it, yet we think it's so important to deal precisely with who are the human beings what are their what is their character behind the institutions that we say we treasure so much we i so i think that that's a response uh zachariah to your question and in terms of our former president trump i think that uh some of the talk about character has not been fruitful but others have because the question is uh, is our leadership such that we are encouraged to take the best of ourselves, present the best of ourselves to the world? Or is it that we have been given permission to let the worst of ourselves, the worst of the human nature we've given to ourselves? So I, I while I think some of the um, the talk about Donald Trump has not been fruitful, I think in other ways, uh, it has been insofar as it focuses on the nature of what good character is. Yeah, that's well said. Yeah, you guys have you guys have mentioned a bit already about some of the, the threats that we see to democracy happening today. And one one in the uh, one that you mention in the book is this tendency, especially kind of in America, uh, for us to you know for us as citizens to see. Uh, our nation as comprised uh, not of a we or an us, but of what you guys call kind of a we and they or an us and them. So there's this kind of oppositional antagonistic character to how we even conceive of us, you know, ourselves as an American nation. So do you think that it's it's possible for to democracy to be sustained in the long term um, when we find ourselves in kind of such a uh, such a vigorously divided society. Either one of you can kick off this one as well. Yeah, yeah. I'll I'll take first shot at it. Um, yeah, the polarization uh, is seemingly uh, at a peak here. Not that there haven't been other times in the history of our nation that there uh, has been polarization, but right now it is uh, kind of front and center. And it poses a tremendous challenge to us because it's easy to despair that we will never come together. It seems like the distance between one another. Do, can we even uh, be civil toward one another? That's before us. So um, what? where do we see some hope of pulling ourselves together, which is necessary for democracy? Not that we all are homogeneous, but that we're able to talk with one another and learn from one another, learn from our differences, engage dialogically. So I think that one, one response to the challenge is for those of us who value uh, community to gather. You know, we've had a series of interviews 
in podcasts about this book, and we're certainly valuing this one uh, that Zachariah has posed for, to us. Uh, this is an example, though, of, of um, pulling together, engaging in dialogue that we hope to be fruitful, that we can learn something from one another. Um, John and I have each made um, appearances. We've talked before our local libraries. And I felt in that sense that even though there may have been people with disparate views, that everyone was together on the importance of learning from one another and being respectful uh, toward one another. I also think um, another hope is not to be dismissive of the other just because that person is voting for another political party, um, but rather to try to engage in the beginnings of dialogue. I'm not here um, being facile in my thought that, for example, that I could engage a, a follower of Donald Trump in immediately um, to uh, cause that person to rethink his or her political affinity. But I don't want to other that person. Um, we know how bad othering is, how to totalize or categorize the other. I want to be able to approach someone who is a follower of Donald Trump and to make the beginnings of inroad to find some commonality, whether it's talking about our grandchildren, talking about um, things we like to do together, just not to write off the other in the name of uh, totalizing that person. And finally, another source of hope is uh, parenting and education. I'm hoping that um, I won't be around to see much of it, but I'm hoping that in parenting and educating for democracy, that we can begin to um, attack the polarization that we see and um, bring the Socratic view, bring um, a view like that of Martin Buber to, to bear in the way we parent and the way we educate. Mm -hmm. Professor Roth, anything you would add to that? Yeah, I'd like to mention something very local. Um, I live in a small town in, uh, in Washington State uh, where I'm in active retirement, as we say. Lenny would, would say the same of him. Uh, we had a, a hotly contested uh, school board election in, uh, in my local school district this year. And it was, it was emblematic of uh, school board elections around the country uh, this November, where, you know, different uh, philosophies about how children should be educated uh, in extreme forms. It's involved um, attempts to ban books and to, you know, uh, restrict what goes on in school libraries and even to uh, censor uh, what teachers can do. We didn't have any of that here in Winter, Washington, but we did have um, a contested uh, school board election. And there were three seats that were up for election and the election results came in and the election uh, was not particularly close. That is the three winners uh, who were mostly incumbents, you know, prevailed by a comfortable margin. 
But I was pleased to see in our local weekly paper uh, last week after the election that one of the candidates who had lost wrote a very generous letter to the editor, you know, uh, saying that, you know, he wanted to applaud the election and that uh, while he didn't prevail in his attempt to hold a seat on the school board, uh, he remained committed to doing what he can to ensure that that our school district functions well and that the children are well-educated within it. And I thought, well, there's a, there's a good example, a good local example of how democracy is at work. No one who lost the election was saying the election was rigged or that it was stolen from them. People who won did so graciously and those who did not win, at least in this one instance, uh, stated publicly uh, that they had appreciated the process and that they were going to continue working to support the school district, uh, you know, not giving up their beliefs or their ideas, but not giving up on the process either. So there are these examples and they can be built upon. It isn't rocket science. This is what we have been used to doing in the United States when we've been at our best. And uh, we can we can reclaim that tradition. Lenny and I uh, have, have come to the conclusion, partly as we wrote the book and, and then in these uh, conversations we've been having about it since, that uh, that you can't rescue endangered American democracy. You can't sustain and protect democracy by becoming anti-democratic. You have to take the risk that goes with committing uh, ourselves to the practice of democracy, which, uh, as the local example I cited indicates, is you know honoring and respecting fair and free elections. Yeah, it's nice to hear examples like that, and one one hopes that we can start to see uh, a re revitalization of that kind of way of carrying ourselves, even at you know the higher levels. Well, especially I think at the higher levels of government. So appreciate that example, and I, yeah, I really like um, also. Professor Grob, some of your discussion of kind of Buber and Levinas and, and not, you know, the importance of not othering people we disagree with, not, like you said, not totalizing or categorizing them or not rushing to do so anyways, but recognizing them as, you know, human beings just like me um, who suffer and struggle and who will die just like I will. Sort of, you know, seeing them first as a human being, I think that's such an important, important part. Uh, and so, yeah, since we're talking about Buber and Levinas, and especially for Levinas, you know, for whom the Holocaust is so um, important and so kind of so prominent in the background of his thoughts, let's 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 turn to kind of the role that that the Holocaust plays in this in this warnings book. You mentioned, um, you both mentioned that you're scholars of the Holocaust. And you come back um, time and again, kind of throughout the book, to to you know mentions and discussions of the Holocaust. So, what connections do you make um, between the Holocaust and the kinds of dangers we're talking about to democracy that we're we're sort of confronting in our world today? And then also, you know, how might the Holocaust sort of inform us? How might we learn from it um, as we face some of these dangers to democracy? Uh, the first thing to say, Zachariah, is that um, 
we begin from the perspective that the Holocaust is not something that just appeared out of nowhere. Uh, it had lots of uh, antecedents, and these were uh, things that uh, were taking place uh, primarily in the in the 1930s and in, into the early 1940s. And high on the list, there there were two things that were high on the list that made us, you know, think that there are some connections between the 1930s and the 2020s. One was that Hitler uh, despised democracy and uh, worked as quickly as he could to dismantle it once he came to power in January of 1933. Now, the democracy that he dismantled was not a not a strong democracy. It was it was weak and fragile. It was the post World War One democracy that was set up in what was called the Weimar Republic. But nonetheless, uh, Hitler got rid of it as quickly as he could. And uh, this reflected his own philosophical belief that democracy was something to to be regarded from his point of view as a danger. He even kind of equated it with uh, Jewish interests, and therefore that made democracy even more uh, something that he opposed. The second thing that struck us in a really strong way was how much Hitler's success, and we have to think of it that way. I mean, Hitler did control a country and he had his way for way too long, but his project was controlled by the use of big lies. Nearly everything that Nazism represented or stood for was rooted in some big lie or other. The racial antisemitism that uh, Hitler espoused was based on a big lie. The notion that Germany had been betrayed at the end of World War I by a so-called stab in the back was a big lie. And all the propagandizing about Aryan superiority and, and even the imagery that Hitler used about the Jews, calling them vermin, a term that has come back into, into prominence uh, just this week, um, all of this was based on a series of falsehoods that were uh, repeated again and again and uh, publicized and propagandized until they became sort of the mantras of a regime. So those were two things, Hitler's despising of democracy, Hitler's use of the big lie that uh, seemed to us to have echoes in the 2020s, not only in the United States, but uh, uh, particularly uh, in, in our own, own country. And we had a contemporary example of this going on uh, concurrently, which is Vladimir Putin and uh, his anti-democratic sentiments manifesting themselves in his invasion of Ukraine and the big lies that Putin tells about almost everything that comes across his uh, purview. So these were the things that caught us. We weren't arguing in the book that uh, what awaits the United States, if the warnings are unheeded, is the Holocaust, uh, you know, a massive genocide that the, that the uh, 
American uh, history would would incorporate. It wasn't that. What we what we saw was that there were um, forces at work in our own country that could lead to the demise of democracy. And Lenny and I, as we wrote the book, came to uh, believe more and more that democracy uh, is not perfect as we practice it here today, but it is something that is good, something worth defending, something worth expanding, something worth sustaining going forward and, uh, and, and opening, if, expanding it if we can. I'll just add a few other uh, things that, um, as Holocaust scholars, um, we, as John has used the word, we looked at um, what's happening today with our democracy under threat through the lens that we're accustomed to, the lens of Holocaust scholarship. Um, We saw, for example, uh, how religion was co-opted during the uh, period of the 1930s in Germany. Uh, The German Christians, um, both Protestants and Catholics, were given over to Hitler's regime, to Nazism. And today we see some signs um, in Christian nationalism, especially in the evangelicals today, who are not going to the roots of their religious religious traditions, but um, have in some ways um, departed from those roots in ways that would threaten uh, our democracy. We see, we look at education during the 1930s in Germany. We see the uh, how education was uh, idolatrous. Uh, it was for the sake of the Aryan nation and Hitler in particular. And we certainly see today the threats to our own um, educational system through control of content, uh, especially content that has to do with issues of gender or our um, history of uh, endemic racism. We see even uh, there, some on the extremes have, have talked about burning books, uh, but certainly the removal of them is uh, a threat that recalls in some ways uh, what was happening to education and books in particular in 1930s. And finally, I think bystander behavior during the 1930s was evident, and we see some of this today. In Germany, um, ordinary Germans fail to act when they could have with out uh, threats to their personhood. They, for example, when Jewish professionals, doctors, lawyers, bankers were dismissed peremptorily from their positions, and uh, the doctors, the physicians in Germany said, we will not practice medicine um, unless our Jewish colleagues are reinstated. And the lawyers said there will be no work in our courts unless our Jewish colleagues are reinstated. Had that happened, there would not have necessarily been a Holocaust. Today, we see bystander behavior, especially, especially among 
the traditional conservatives in the Republican Party. Um, they have been quiet. It isn't only the loud supporters of Donald Trump and his threats to democracy that we have to worry about. We have to worry equally about the silence of the of so much of the rest of the Republican Party. So these were also elements um, that um, echoed in our minds as we wanted to examine the threats to our democracy currently. Sure. Yeah. And I mean, on the on the topic of some of these kind of parallels we're drawing between sort of, you know, the uh, Holocaust era and, and what we're facing today and looking more kind of specifically at, at sort of the MAGA movement, because uh, obviously there's a there's a ton of conversation about, you know, MAGA uh, and MAGA supporters having you know, that there's sort of this eerie resemblance to what we saw in the National Socialist Party in Germany. So do you think that those claims that there's sort of a family resemblance, do you think those are justified? Um, do you think that they're overblown or underplayed? I'm curious what your thoughts are on on that. You know, we have to be careful. I think John and I were aware from the beginning not to make any facile claims that um, although our democracy is in trouble, this is not the 1930s yeah. in Germany. We have to both draw lessons from the parallels that exist while not overstating our case. Um, but we're frightened uh, when we hear about retribution, when we hear that those who have accused Donald Trump of wrongdoing in the several indictments levied against him, when we hear Mr. Trump say that uh, if he is elected president in 2024, that he will levy retribution against those who dared uh, challenge him and accuse him of wrongdoing. This is uh, a warning not to be taken uh, lightly. The MAGA movement has taken over one of our two major political parties. And uh, this is frightening uh, to us. I think one of the things, Zachariah, that we uh, emphasize toward the end of the book is that uh, Americans are prone to uh, take democracy for granted, uh, that there may be a danger. Others are saying this today, that we are sleepwalking toward uh, the demise of democracy. And then the thing that Lenny and I stress toward the end, that uh, Americans can scarcely imagine what it would be like long term for us to lose our democracy. We take, we take it for granted. Uh, we think our institutions will save us. Uh, but none of that is uh, guaranteed. And uh, we, we could, uh, uh, and the 2024 national election is crucial. We wrote the book uh, with our eyes on that uh, presidential national election in 2024 as certainly being the most important presidential election in the lifetime that uh, Lenny and I have shared, which is more than 80 years. And uh, we are we are worried. And I think another thing that Lenny and I would agree on is that uh, when we started writing the book in uh, 2022, 
since that time, uh, things have not gotten better. Uh, the the danger is is greater than it was than when we started, and uh, symptomatic of that has to do with rhetoric that is being used by one of the leading candidates for the presidency, Donald Trump, that includes, even though he backtracked on some of it, the idea of uh, suspending the Constitution, taking retribution, uh, weaponizing the Department of Justice, uh, and and having in place uh, plans called Project 2025 uh, that are laying the groundwork for the personnel structuring of the second Trump administration if he prevails in the election. And it's definitely not a picture that uh, underscores and validates and strengthens democracy in the United States. It does just the opposite. So the coming election in 2024 uh, in uh, our view, the view that Lenny and I share, is absolutely pivotal for uh, the future of democracy in the United States. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think it's becoming more and more apparent for sure um, that perhaps democracy is not quite as as rock solid or as, as impenetrable as we once thought it was. And it and even I mean, even indeed that it's that, it, you know, much more fragile than we might might have imagined. As we close out our conversation, I want to turn to the final pages of this book, Warnings. You you call up uh, a really uh, wonderful image from the philosopher Philip Halley, whom we've mentioned already. He uses this metaphor of, of a hurricane, right? He uses it as kind of a political metaphor. So could you share a bit about what Halley was kind of doing with this image and then also how how you are making use of it? in the book. Maybe I can start on this and uh, uh, Lenny can add a little bit. Philip Halley uh, was a slightly older contemporary to uh, Lenny and me. He's uh, not alive today, but uh, Lenny and I think both knew him. He was a philosopher and he also uh, spent his career teaching uh, in a liberal arts uh, institution like Lenny and I have done. Halley taught uh, for many years at uh, Wesleyan University in Connecticut. And it was uh, there one year that uh, a hurricane kind of stirred itself up out of the Atlantic and found its way up into parts of New England. And uh, Halley uh, witnessed this and uh, he observed the hurricane and he was attracted to uh, the eye of the hurricane, where as he uh, observed it and then wrote about it, he saw that the sky was blue. And he could see that there were birds uh, flying around in the eye of the hurricane. And at first he was taken by, you know, how this seemed to be uh, a kind of uh, image of how there could be uh, in the midst of the hurricane space for activity that wasn't destructive, that, you know, included the birds flying around. Then later he found out from a, a scientist who knew better than Halley what, what was going on in the eye of the hurricane, 
that uh, far from uh, flying around in the eye of the hurricane in a way that was sort of beautiful and peaceful, the birds were literally battling for their lives because they kept running into the edges of the hurricane that were uh, were utterly destructive to them. <laughs> so Halley had to rethink his uh, hurricane metaphor a bit, which he, he went on to do. And uh, where he came out was uh, that, yeah, the birds were in trouble, but still in the midst of the hurricane, there was space, there, there was the blue, uh, and he didn't, come away from his revised thinking about the eye of the hurricane in despair or in a feeling of hopelessness, but rather that if you could expand the blue, the place for safety within the hurricane might be uh, increased. And so this became his, uh, his metaphor for, uh, for the ethical life. And we found it uh, a good way to uh, end the book with the idea that uh, what we have to do is take seriously Halley's warning. His warning was, it's the hurricane we're in, don't forget it. But at the same time, the ethical imperative in the midst of the hurricane is to expand the blue, to create a space, as he put it, for for love and respect and for hope uh, as best we can do it. And uh, this seemed to Lenny and me to be a, a good kind of story. Hallie was a wonderful storyteller, a good kind of story on which to uh, end our book with, with the idea that, uh, as Lenny likes to say, democracy is a verb, not a noun. It's a process. It's a challenge. It's an ongoing project. And it succeeds or fails to the extent that uh, we can expand the blue in the midst of the hurricane. John spoke beautifully, and uh, it was John actually who brought this uh, image to our book. I would just add, um, first of all, the, the, the image doesn't play down the destructive power. The power is there. But the blue is there also, but our job is to expand, and that each of us can find ways to expand the blue from where we stand. Um, if we're teachers, we have a special opportunity. If we are other professionals, uh, doctors can certainly work with to, to serve the underserved uh, Attorneys can certainly work with the refugee population, but everyone can do something, whether they're professional or not, by being kind to each other. One thing that we have been missing, I think, especially since uh, Donald Trump's presidency, um, it's not gone away, even with Biden's ascendancy to the presidency is uh, that there's just a lot of hate around and a lot of lack of kindness. So everyone can contribute to expanding the blue by being kind. And I'm really struck by a quote from Dostoevsky. Actually, the quote was cited by philosopher Emmanuel Levinas, who um, I work on. Dostoevsky says, 
each of us is responsible for one another and I more than the others. That seems to me to be a call to expand the blue. Sure. No, that's beautiful. Very, yeah, very nicely said. Okay, well, this seems like a, a great place for us to um, wrap up today. Um, for our listeners, you can find uh, a link in the show notes to Professor Grob and Professor Roth's new book, Warnings, the Holocaust, Ukraine, and Endangered American Democracy. Professors Grob and, uh, and Roth, I just want to say thank you very much for taking some time to, to talk. It's been a real pleasure um, speaking with you. Thank you for inviting us. Thank you so much. Uh, We appreciated very much the uh, probing questions that you asked us, and we're very grateful for the opportunity to talk about the book.